So for instance, we might have plenty of volunteers who are interested in becoming humanly enhanced in our militaries, but our safety requirements and our ethical debates surrounding these technologies might slow our adoption and their implementation. So I would argue that the most important piece about the DOD's AI ambitions is um, the data that underpins it. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within the Army Futures Command, and I'm joined by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with research fellows from the College of William and Mary's Project on International Peace and Security, or PIPS. PIPS is one of the premier undergraduate think tanks in the country, designed to bridge the gap between the academic and foreign policy communities in the area of undergraduate education. PIPS research fellows identify emerging international security issues and develop original policy recommendations to address those challenges. This episode is part one of two with the PIPS fellows, so stay tuned next week for the conclusion. And finally, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Okay, so we're joined today by Marie Murphy, who is a consultant with the Mad Scientists and a former PIPS fellow herself. Marie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you were involved in Mad Scientists over the last couple of years, but really, how did you become involved with the PIPS program, and can you tell us a little more about it? I've wanted to be invo- involved with PIPS since my freshman year. It is the premier undergraduate Uh, research for international policy and international security here at William & Mary. And when the opportunity for the fellowship came up, you have to be a junior or a senior, I was very excited to apply. And I really do think that my time with the Mad Scientists, my writing experience I got with that organization and my presentation experience I got working with you guys really helped me secure the fellowship last year. That's fantastic. And, you know, can you tell us what it's like as someone in your age bracket, really, really in Generation Z, what is it like in terms of working with the Department of Defense uh, and what advice would you give to people out there who might be considering it? I think this is a very interesting time to work with the Department of Defense. We're definitely going through lots of modernization, lots of rethinking about the future, given what's happening in the world with the emerging technologies that we're seeing and the new ways of fighting war. I would recommend to anyone who is interested in getting involved with the DOD or anything like that to apply to as many internships and opportunities as you can find. Uh, You can find them if you're a college student like myself at your campus recruiting center or career center, or you can find them online. And I just highly encourage you throwing an application out there and seeing what uh, what comes of that. Awesome. And you actually had uh, quite an interesting research project yourself last year. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So last year I looked at potential uh, religious and ethnic divides in the Russian military, basically uh, an in-group and an out-group, the in-group being ethnically Russian forces who are treated as superior forces and are conscripted to be elites in the Russian military versus the uh, non-ethnic Russians who are relegated to lower positions 
positions and who are not given promotion opportunities in the Russian military and how that could actually be an internal fracture in the military. And if the military becomes stressed, that could actually present a breaking point and uh, a chasm between the Russian military, which could cause internal dysfunction and even internal collapse in the Russian military. And I pitched it in my paper as actually an opportunity for the United States, as something good for us, that this... uh, a division in the Russian military exists. And what surprised you most in that research? I think what surprised me most was how blatant it is and how very uh, obviously uh, that this is done. There's actually uh, been some research that's been published in the last year about how they use genetic coding and DNA to determine the superior soldier. And uh, and that's very interesting how, how quite honestly blatantly it is, especially living in the United States where discrimination, uh, particularly in the armed forces and everywhere, is, is not allowed. It's illegal. And uh, we see this happening uh, blatantly in Russia. You know, you worked with us over the last couple of years uh, in terms of papers that we've worked on and research that we've done, and you've been extensively involved in all that in, in the review process. Um, being that you are, in again, a generation that's actually going to live through all these disruptive changes in terms of technology and societal trends, um, we ask this question a lot on the podcast, what is the technology uh, that keeps you up at night? I would say the technology keeps me up at night the most would have to be actually something that uh, a fellow coming on the podcast is going to talk to you about in a minute would be um, deep fakes and the just d- the breakdown of trust in our society of what we can see in the media and on social media being from a social media generation where we get lots of our news and our credible sources from what we think are credible sources from the media and from social media I think being able to falsify reports and create fake news uh, is and to have them be believable is absolutely terrifying and we won't be able to trust what comes out of our leaders mouths anymore we won't be able to trust what is fake news and what is not fake news going into the future and so the breakdown of, of trust and the breakdown of a belief in what institutions are putting out and not knowing what to believe and who you can believe in the future because of all the possibility for very effective uh, frauds and uh, effective propaganda that uh, fake news has um, definitely is is very worrying for our political and social processes in the future. That's an excellent answer, and uh, you've been a really valued member of the team, and you know we really appreciate everything you do with us, uh, but that does not save you from the toughest question that we always ask, and I'll let uh, Matt ask that. All right, Marie, based on your research and everything you've been involved in uh, formulating this answer, what is your favorite movie of all time? Of all time, I did uh, have a quick look and think of uh, what I wanted to answer, and I would say uh, my favorite movie would be anything with the great Meryl Streep in it. Uh, Devil Wears Prada, Julie and Julia, I'm definitely, uh, you know, although I love The Mad Scientist, I'm definitely more of a uh, comedy comedy kind of person, so I think Meryl Streep can't go wrong. Well, thanks for coming on, Marie. We really appreciate what you've done with the PIPS program uh, and really the the amount of talent and expertise and and really imagination that you've brought to us uh, in terms of the students that we're working with now and and working with you in the past, so really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me and the uh, PIPS program. All right, we're here with Caroline Duckworth. Caroline, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name's Caroline. I'm a junior at William & Mary. I'm studying international relations and minoring in data science. Um, I'm a research fellow this year, and I was a research intern last year. So I've been with PIPS for a little while now. Fantastic. So, you know, Caroline, based on your research, one of the things that you've been looking at is biotechnology, correct? Absolutely. Uh, so biotech is becoming cheaper, more accessible, and more proliferated by government entities all over the world. How will the asymmetry in ethics, you know, the, the differences between us and authoritarian regimes, between governments, how does that allow for potentially nefarious or malicious uses of this biotechnology? Sure. So in my paper, I mainly uh, talk about two main implications for the U.S. The first implication that I explore is the weaponized dependency argument, which is essentially that the United States could be outcompeted in um, certain biotechnologies and become dependent on other countries to provide those. So one example of this that I explore is kind of how China produces the vast majority of U.S. generic prescription medication. And what I look at is how should they be able to pivot to more innovative drugs through their Made in China 2025 policy and through their 13th five-year plan, um, how they could we could become dependent on these new and innovative drugs. And this is this supply chain is really critical, obviously, because U.S. lives depend on this. And this came up during the U.S.-China trade war, was we were concerned about being cut off from these uh, generic prescriptions. And it's actually come up again very recently in the coronavirus, um, which isn't so much an example of an asymmetric ethical framework, but does demonstrate that it, this is a really concerning supply chain. You know, it's a, an antibiotic could be um, in short supply here coming up based on factories that are having to close down. So that's the first implication that I explore. The second one that I talk about is um, asymmetric military capabilities as a result of differing ethics. So I start by going over how states with um, different ethical uh, standards and regulations compared to the United States could more quickly pursue and adopt different sorts of bioweapons, which while not necessarily a preferable weapon, biotechnology advancement might make them more appealing in that in some cases they're estimating that eventually bioweapons will be able to target people specifically based on their genetic codes, so certain populations, etc. And I also go into talking about human enhancement technology Um, So, for instance, we might have plenty of volunteers who are interested in becoming humanly enhanced in our militaries, but our safety requirements and our ethical debates surrounding these technologies might slow our adoption and their implementation. I think those are interesting points. Just to pull the thread a little bit, I I thought it was interesting what you talked about in terms of that dependency on, you know, what what is now generic drugs and, and let's say, in the future, um, there's future advances in cancer research or... Or, um, autoimmune diseases and things like that that come out of China. So how do you think, how do we balance need versus security? That is a definitely a tricky balance for sure. I think innovation everywhere can be a really good thing. And so I think it's it's important to recognize that there are areas where we can collaborate with others to, you know, get at this cusp of innovation, even if we can't get it here. But I think in terms of um, maintaining our security and our access to those prescription medications in the future, I think actually that that collaboration is essential. Um, because if you're not working with them on it, then you might not have the access to it as quickly as you might need it. So based on your background and what you told us you're studying here, how did you how did you come to a project uh, or what got you interested in a project uh, that that's focused on biotechnology? 
it is kind of an interesting um, way I arrived at this. So in high school, actually, I was very interested in biotech. Um, so I went to a governor's school for, ma- um, for math and science, and I was in the biology track there. And I actually came to William & Mary thinking I was going to be in, interested in biology. And um, I ended up switching my freshman year, and I've loved it since I, since I changed my mind. But I think that um, problems like this are really interesting because you get to kind of combine a lot of these different interests that, I, that I've had in the past. It's obviously, you know, a fascinating topic when you look at biotechnology in the different aspects that you can see it in. But as you were researching this, was there anything that jumped out at you that that really surprised you? I think something that I thought maybe not was that wasn't surprising to me, but that really interested me was the differences in how obviously culture really affects your ethical decisions and how um, you look at what is acceptable and what is unacceptable to you. And I think it's really interesting to look at how, obviously, you can't be making judgments as to whether or not something is morally superior to another decision, but how it can really, science has almost become very political through these kinds of different frameworks. And so I think that that was something that really interested me. I don't know that I was necessarily surprised by it, but it was very interesting. You know, a question we ask a lot of times is, what is a technology that that keeps you up at night. But I'm really curious, based on your your more extensive research, what is an aspect of biotechnology that really keeps you up at night? So I think what's really interesting about biotechnology is how it, it is really becoming a kind of democratized technology. So it's it's spreading and the ease of use is getting, um, it's, it's getting so much easier to use. So um, for instance, I could order a CRISPR kit and do things online, which is um, really interesting. And, and I don't know that that's necessarily an immediate big threat because the threshold for knowledge that you have to have to make something that would be effective is still very high. But obviously those are you know, we have the internet and we can we can do those research. So I think that that's something that I don't know. Um, it's going to be very interesting regulatory landscape coming up. So Caroline, uh, finally, what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie is Goodwill Hunting. Okay, another solid choice. Too. I like them apples. <laughs> All right, well, Caroline, we really appreciate you coming on. We had some really interesting takes on biotechnology, and we really appreciate your insights and in coming on. Thank you. Okay, we're here with Clara Waterman. Clara, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, like they said, my name is Clara. I'm a senior at William & Mary. I'm a government major and Arabic minor. Um, My research interests primarily lie uh, in Middle East politics and um, security in that region. Uh, However, my project has really nothing to do with that at all. So, excited to talk with you guys. Okay, so your project deals with AI and specifically AI within the Department of Defense. Um, So in that vein, what are some of the critical aspects that the U.S. needs to focus on in in this realm for them to successfully deploy artificial intelligence? So I would argue that the most important piece about the DOD's AI ambitions is um, the data that underpins it. So it is a critical resource data that fuels AI development. Data has to exist in order for algorithms to like learn the patterns that they need to learn so then they can predict what you want them to predict later on. So in that spirit, data is, I think, like the most critical uh, 
component of of artificial intelligence because I know that uh, the DoD has a lot of you know grand plans for AI. We talk about hypersonic weapons and you know autonomous this that and the other thing. Um, but if the data that is fueling it uh, goes in, then the outcomes are going to be bad. There's a, a saying in the AI, AI world: um, garbage in, garbage out. And uh, that's why data is is really really critical. So if data is the most important part of this, um, there's a lot of security implications there. How do we ensure that we have not only the right data and the data that's that's the most useful, but how do we ensure we have the most truthful data, more or less? How do we how do we ensure the security of the data we have that somebody's not manipulating it or spoofing it? That's a great question. Uh, so my policy solution looks at uh, creating a data clearinghouse. So basically looking at uh, other models like the NCTC or um, even like the Mars uh, project that the DoD is working on. Um, it's the, the current iteration of the I, uh, MIDB. So um, consolidating you know data and uh, these cross-department um, collaborative efforts on data. So while my proposal doesn't look at anything of that scope necessarily, nothing with thousands of employees and, and millions and millions of dollars, uh, I would like to create something that would be a collaborative environment for people to talk about um, the proper data collection methods, data vetting methods, and data labeling methods. Um, And I think the crux of it is uh, my form of a a data pedigree. So a problem that we're seeing a lot right now is that uh, data is being passed around the DOD or uh, it's being stovepiped within the DOD, and you don't really know who's had it and who where it's coming from, or you don't have any contextual information about it. You don't know how old it is, or you know if it's um, been vetted, or if it was, you know, collected by um, an outside party uh, that pays their employees one dollar an hour, and you know don't have any proper training in that field. Um, and so there's there's a host of security concerns and implications uh, for poor data, uh, as you mentioned. But I'm hoping that through the implications of um, a data pedigree, at the very least, um, that would accompany every data set that an office produces within the DOD, uh, that'll create some some through line um, in these conversations about data. So uh, I ask about 10 or 15 questions, basically, uh, you know, what was the intention behind creating this data, what factors were considered when creating it, what factors were considered but not implemented when creating it. Um, if you can improve something about this data set, what would it be? Just to give people a sense of, of the thought that went behind it, as well as the originating office and employee, so the people who took lead on the creation of a particular data set, uh, and the now caretaking office, if that differs. Because, um, you know, I'm sure being in the DOD for a while, you know that offices change names every day, and you're constantly going through organizations, and people move in and out on, on TDYs and um, PCSs and things. So I think just creating a standardization and some sort of back catalog of here's the data we already have so we can better see where our blind spots are um, and better see the the things we need to focus on moving forward. I kind of have a two-part question based on everything you've explained. We've talked to some other PIPS fellows and we understand there's a pretty rigorous process in terms of selecting a, a research project. So what really led you to this project? And then was there anything that surprised you as you were going through it? 
Well, to answer the first part of your question, uh, the whole, I guess, genesis of this project for me is I was listening to a podcast over the summer um, on a podcast called 99% Invisible, and they were interviewing uh, a woman, uh, Caroline Cristillo-Perez, I believe is her name, uh, but she wrote a book called Invisible Woman, How Data Bias, uh, like, basically impacts like the way that we live our world um and she uses examples like uh car seats and seat belts are designed on male uh crash test dummies so women are more likely to die in car accidents because the seats aren't designed for them or even um how uh, certain places design their their snow shoveling routes um are designed to get men out the door and get to work faster and so there's a higher rate of injury amongst women in winter months uh, so things like that, like these little minute things um, that we don't really consider that, that are affecting our everyday lives. And her whole argument is this has been a problem. It's going to keep being a problem. And with the introduction of artificial intelligence, it's going to compound this problem because we are taking the things that are going into AI and coming out of AI as gospel truth. We're like, oh, it's AI. AI has seen it. It's, you know, this magic potion or whatever that's going to to smooth over these biases but like I said garbage in garbage out so I think that was my um my uh impetus to say okay I totally buy that like everything you said I I completely agree with so if data um if data fuels AI and the data that gets going into AI is bad and that's impacting all these other these other areas of development um in the private sector or you know in the public sector uh, how does that specifically apply to the DoD as the um, biggest producer and consumer of data in the USG um and something that surprised me is there is another podcast uh, that I was listening to called AI with AI that comes out of the Center of Naval Analysis. Um, and there was an episode where they were talking about um, just kind of just basics. What is AI? And uh, someone was discussing how um, they were discussing how there's a huge gap between those who were technically informed and those who were technically literate. So for, I would imagine, us in this room, um, we are you know technically informed. You could sit us in front of an article and be like, yeah, I, I got that. It's a little techie, but I, I can wrap my head around it. But if you sat me in front of you know spreadsheets and spreadsheets and told me to develop a deep learning algorithm, I would have no idea where to start. So I, I think just looking at that gap and seeing it so pronounced in, in the experts I've talked to and, and just the people I've interacted with, um, there's this this camp that is data scientists, computer scientists, know this stuff forward and backward, um, but don't necessarily focus on the policy implications because it's just outside of their purview. And then the other camp that is, um, you know, the policy side of the house, but have no idea, um, kind of like the the extent to which data affects AI or what AI is actually capable of and what um, is kind of a, you know, a sci-fi future thing that we just hope will happen versus what what is um, actually has the capacity to do. So I think I was really surprised by that. Claire, what's a technology or a trend that keeps you up at night? It's funny, I've asked a lot of uh, experts this question (laughs) and no one's asked me yet. So I I think based on several of their answers, I would say... um, perhaps some of the blind faith that a lot of people have in artificial intelligence um and you know tying it back to my project the um the lack of understanding of of kind of where this artificial intelligence output comes from uh, there's just a lot of a lot of discussion about the ethics of ai and and, and things like that which of course are, are really important but things like self-driving cars uh, a lot of data scientists and computer scientists i've talked to are like oh yeah we're decades away from that like generalizable ai is is um 
just not something that is is happening at a, a rapid fire pace. And we are we're kind of betting on technology that doesn't yet exist. We're we're putting our chips on the development of things that, that are are to come. And um, I'm afraid that we are going to kind of keep building and keep trying to to do all this AI, you know, snazzy, sexy AI things um, without giving it a proper foundation. And so I think while it's in this nascent sp- stage, it's all the more important that um, we pay attention, very close attention to the data that is um, training our algorithms, to the data that we're collecting, to the the whole process really of the data cycle, um, because algorithms or artificial intelligence algorithms, once you spit data out, you have these results, and then those results often go on to feed other artificial intelligence algorithms. So it, it becomes this perpetual cycle. If, if you get one thing wrong at the very beginning, it just balloons and, and cycles through until you have you know a whole host of, of um, inaccurate outputs. And so I think I'm I'm scared to the extent that that we are not really having. Um, conversations about this. Yeah, I think that's a, I think this is a very sensible answer and a very uh, uh, measured answer. And, and a lot of times, with with how quickly most technologies will advance, sometimes it's jarring when the ones we really want to advance don't advance as quick as we think they are. But we still have to we still have to sit back, uh, take stock of it, and if if we're going to make any any uh, advancement, and we have to make sure that we build it from the ground up, and we we don't have that compounding error, which I think you were you were alluding to. Um, so finally, uh, Clara, what's your favorite movie? The toughest question of all. Always is. Um, I would say it is a toss-up between um, Inception, because it, it stands up to rewatching every time, um, and maybe the Lord of the Rings trilogy. No Only the extended cuts. No arguments here. No, that's <laughs> very well done. Okay, Clara, well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, great discussion, and we thank you for coming in. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Okay, so we're here with Catherine Armstrong from the PIPS program. Catherine, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a senior here at William & Mary. I study international relations and sociology, and through PIPS, I'm working on a project right now on transnational repression and its consequences for U.S. security. Can you tell us a little bit about the research you did for the Mad Scientist event and here at school and some of the security implications for the U.S. as a result of that? I would love to. First of all, because transnational repression is not a very well-known term, I'd like to give a few examples. So falling within this phenomenon are things like the hacking of Iranian-American social media accounts, threats to Uyghurs' relatives in China, and Turkey's abuse of Interpol alerts, and China's personalized disinformation campaigns. And these are all efforts to control and silence political dissidents in the emigrant communities of various non-democratic states. So in short, it's the targeting of co-ethnics and co-nationals. And for the United States, these co-ethnic and co-national targets are U.S. citizens and residents. Right now, this is having consequences for U.S. civil society because these targets are influential intellectuals, activists, journalists. In terms of journalists, we can think of Jamal Khashoggi, who was assassinated in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. 
And it has consequences for U.S. democracy in terms of democratic rights, such as freedom of speech and freedom of association, as well as for democratic institutions. Multilateral institutions like Interpol would be included in that. And of course, it has consequences for U.S. partnerships and alliances, such as the U.S. partnership with Saudi Arabia. But because these tactics that are being used are not exclusive to co-nationals and co-ethnics, they are, as I say in my paper, transferable to non-co-ethnic and non-co-national targets. I argue that we should expect to see an expansion of these tactics to non-co-ethnic and non-co-national targets, people who are influential in U.S. civic space as well as politics and security space, people like social influencers, economic leaders, politicians, and even members of the military and intelligence communities. So you can see how this phenomenon is currently having consequences for security and in the future will have much broader implications for U.S. security and U.S. civic space. So what can the targets uh, of this repression do to try to combat this? What can we do as citizens or as, as targets of this? So I'm going to speak more broadly about what I think the United States needs to be doing in this regard. So first, the United States government and the U.S. public needs to recognize this phenomenon. Right now, there's some increasing awareness of various aspects of the phenomenon, such as how the relatives of Uyghurs are being targeted in China. But as a whole, the phenomenon has not received much awareness at all. And this is because it has been overlooked as isolated incidents, as cybercrime, as a civil society issue, and as infighting between outsiders. In short, you know, not a problem that U.S. citizens need to be worried about. What we need to be doing is establishing a standard of acceptable behavior, which means making clear what is not okay behavior for states and then monitoring and policing that behavior. In my paper, I offer four policy recommendations to help establish this standard. So first, I suggest a watch list of individual perpetrators and of victims, and the watch list will enable victims to protect themselves by notifying them that they have been targeted, which can allow them to take preventative measures, such as switching devices, not sharing confidential information over means that may be under surveillance, and otherwise protecting themselves from cyber attacks. Now, the watch list of perpetrators should be tied to sanctioning of individual perpetrators, which is my second recommendation. And this can be done through existing measures, such as the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act, which is a long name for an act that allows violators of human rights to be sanctioned with financial and visa sanctions. And third, I suggest an improvement of Interpol rules and processes, which on the U.S.'s part can take the form of increased funding and establishing standards for the use of Interpol alerts in U.S. legal proceedings which is described in the TRAP Act of 2019. 
which has not yet been passed. And last but not least, I think that it's important to foster resilience within immigrant communities through diaspora organizations, independent foreign language media, youth groups, religious groups, and other groups that can help immigrant communities increase their civic and political engagement, which in turn improves community cohesion and builds resilience against these attacks. Excellent. Um, so tell me a little bit about your research process. How, you, how, how did you get into this field, this transnational repression? And, and what was it like researching it? How did, how did you delve into this information? So because of my own family's history of migration and my studies in sociology, I've always been drawn to migration as well as human rights issues. And I found that transnational repression was a field where these two things intersected. And I came upon an article by Gerasimos Tsurapas, who is a scholar, one of the few scholars working in this field. And that article sparked my interest in the phenomenon. And as I continued to read more of the scholarly articles on it, I began to realize that no one is conceptualizing this as a security threat for host states. And so I was drawn to the idea that I could make a new intellectual contribution in that regard. Very good. Um, so what we, what we normally do at the end of these podcasts is we ask some quick-fire questions. Um, now, yours isn't, isn't technologically based, although a lot of the folks we have on here, they're involved in technology. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll pose it to you as this. What's a trend or a future trend that you see that kind of keeps you up at night? Other than this, because this in, it, in itself would keep someone up at night. I think that one trend that I see that is largely technologically based that scares me is the sort of disintegration of truth, not knowing anymore how to evaluate what is and is not truth. Yeah, we're seeing a theme there. Um, okay, and finally, uh, we get to the most important question. What's your favorite movie of all time? Casablanca. Well done. <laughs> One word, and you're, and you're good to go. Okay, well, well, thank you so much for coming in, Catherine. Um, and uh, your topic was very unique. It's one that I hadn't thought about, um, at least not in depth. Um, and so thank you for contributing to the podcast, and thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Marie Murphy, Caroline Duckworth, Clara Waterman, and Catherine Armstrong of the College of William & Mary's Project on International Peace and Security. Stay tuned next week for part two. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.